Hi, Irish Passport listeners. We have a quick announcement for you because we are introducing some new and very exciting benefits for our Patreon supporters. We are introducing early access for Patreon supporters. So that means all of our episodes are going to be available first on Patreon and completely ad-free. So if you subscribe over there, you'll get access to our bonus episodes. And if you subscribe to our second tier or above, you'll also benefit from special listener request episodes that we're introducing to answer your questions and suggestions. On top of all that, we are reintroducing shoutouts for our top tier patrons. This is something that we used to do in the very early days of the pod, and it was really lovely. What it is, is you can send us in a message. It might be a big hello to friends or family, or congratulations to your local sports team, or, or maybe you want to promote a charity that's special to you, and we'll read it out on the podcast. If you sign up now, you'll have access to dozens of our debrief episodes, our bonus half pint series, full-length interviews with guests, our Q&A live streams, and loads of additional content like photos, videos, research, and announcements. If you want to find out any more about that, you can just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. Every subscriber helps keep the podcast going and we're super grateful. So do head over and sign up now. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, Let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, welcome Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh I'm recording. One, One, two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Irish Passport Podcast, where today we are going to be looking at jeans, Naomi. We're not going shopping. We're actually looking at G-E-N-E-S jeans. In fact, we've actually Mm. had this episode in the making for many years now. And it was really inspired by the rise of at-home DNA tests, which became really popular in recent years. Um, And something that came out of that was all of these people discovering, you know, really improbable things about their family history. Like they had a totally different heritage than they thought they had, or they resolved old family mysteries or skeletons came out of the closet because of this new technology and of course the technology itself has raised quite a few questions so we thought it would be something worth looking at. Yeah so today we're going to be looking a little bit at those at-home DNA tests and some of the issues that they can sometimes bring up. We'll also look at what we know about DNA patterns in Ireland, what they can tell us about the history of the island and Mm -hmm. what they can't tell us. And we'll also perhaps be discovering some interesting things about our own genes. Naomi. Mm. I'm really, I can't wait for that. Um, so yeah, this this <laughs> this episode actually has its roots in like 2018. And in preparation for yeah. it, we actually got these at-home DNA tests and we kept the results a secret from each other until now. <laughs> so one uh, global pandemic later, we're finally going to reveal to each other uh, what we found out on our DNA tests, which we have kept secret all this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I am actually really excited about this. I can't <laughs> believe it's been five years. Yeah. Um, so I can't even really remember uh, your reaction, Naomi, because mm. I think you had a little glimmer in your eye when we had taken them. Yeah, <laughs> we were trying very hard not to tell each other. So it could be something very boring or something very exciting. So we'll find out all about that later on in the episode. Okay, so where shall we start, Tim, with the with a kind of overview of DNA? You're going to tell us, you know, what can it tell us? What can it not tell us? 
Okay, right. So we're going. I know exactly where we we need to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to start with one of what I of what I predict might be many big red warning signs in this episode about just the lots of dangers and pitfalls that we can fall into when we discuss a complex issue like genetics in a fairly casual way like we're going to be doing today, right? I do always get a little bit stressed when we're talking about DNA or genetics because, you know, this is a science that has been so abused and misused Mm. over the last hundred years. Um, It's still abused and misused kind of, you know, in like headlines and stuff that you see today. It's Mm -hmm. And it's become quite a kind of hazy concept. Like it's a lot more of an ambiguous concept in popular discourse than I think people realize, actually. Mm. When I was thinking about this, you know, when we were doing the research... It occurred to me that we're dealing with two things here. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that we're talking about here is the science of genetics, which is really new, by the way. It was only really defined in the way that we know it at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is you know, not much more than a century old, really, as as a scientific discipline. There's still loads that we don't know about it. And then there's the second thing that are the various cultural interpretations of that science that people have come up with over that last hundred years and which are usually completely baked through with all kinds of prejudices Mm. and stereotypes and political agendas and all sorts of stuff. And when we, as lay people, as like non-geneticists, have a conversation about genetics as non-experts, speaking mostly to other non-experts, what tends to happen is those two things can be quite difficult to extricate from one another. Right. That we stray from one of those things into the other without realizing it, you know what I mean? And this is something we have to be really careful of, of course, because like we're not experts at all. We, fa- we fall very much into the category of non-experts, like we are not geneticists. Yeah, like, wow. And uh, like, I cannot explain to you how much I'm not a geneticist after doing this <laughs> research, by the way, because yeah, I, I sat down myself down and said, oh, I'll read a few academic articles. But like, it was like sitting down to read Greek. It was really? like a different language, you know, a good, I would say a good 30, 40, maybe 50% of all the text was like abstract combinations of letters and numbers that I didn't <laughs> understand. So, uh, Um, So this is something that you really do have to be an expert on. You do have to be trained in it to really understand what's going Mm -hmm. on here. And that said, if there's any genetic experts out there, which I'm sure there are, we welcome any corrections that you might have. I've tried very, very hard to to only stick to uh, solid facts, but I might have gotten something wrong. So I welcome your corrections. Well, we'll do our our best good faith presentation anyway. And you do have a bit of experience, Tim, is specifically in how people have exploited science like this to assert power or basically subjugate other people, because it's something that comes up Mm. a lot in your research, right? Yeah, yeah. This is something that I have looked into a bit. So the more cultural side of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is something that listeners will understand as well if you think about it, right? So Mm -hmm. if you think about it, there's a very long history of people using heredity in order to segregate groups and to mm. create hierarchies and to try and say that some people are naturally better than other people because of their particular bloodline. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, there's been lots of versions of that, but you know, it doesn't really matter. The kind of power dynamics and the power strategies are, are often very, very similar. So when the discipline of genetics, as we know it, begins to take form, like I said, at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, ordinary people pretty much immediately interpreted it in those easily recognizable cultural terms Mm. they were you know their immediate reaction to this was oh that's why i'm rich and that's why you're poor that's Uh. why i'm smart that's why you're stupid it's because of genetics right they already had a template of i'm better than you to go ready to go you know right Right? so this was just a a mass um, confirmation bias so very quickly 
Um, almost immediately when we see kind of genetics being set down on paper, we see it being co-opted into discourses like social Darwinism and eugenics, where people who usually, mostly, know nothing, knew nothing about the actual science of genetics start to talk about having superior genes or, in, or inferior genes and making whole kind of pseudosciences about mm. it. And then, you know, like really fast after that, we start to see programs of quote unquote genetic cleansing, right? And genetic oh cleansing entire populations. These were in countries like the UK and the United States. There were programs kind of like how far they went. It depends. It's, it's variable, but they were very much there. This is like eugenic stuff. Eugenic stuff, but like yeah. in policy, in public mm. policy and law, um, based on complete amateur uh, misunderstandings of what genetics even was, right? Mm. Uh, by people who had no idea what they were talking about, but who were using genetics to kind of prop up their own pre-existing stereotypes. Okay. Um, you know, when you think about that danger, that is the same wave of thinking that underpins the human extermination projects of the Second World War. That's mm. the same thing. It's just kind of that same thinking brought to its logical conclusion. So this stuff is seriously dangerous. Like, mm. it's really, really, really dangerous because it turns out that people are very, very um, hungry for scientific, quote-unquote, justifications for their own prejudices. And if they can find anything that even resembles a kind of a, quote-unquote, scientific justification for their own prejudice, they will, will use it and abuse it. So genetics is, is just this big red warning sign that we have to be very careful of. Okay, that's, yeah, you put it quite well. Like, people are just roaming around looking for ways to confirm what mm. they already think. And one of these, like, new sciences can be abused in that way. Um, even though it is genuinely, like, an extremely interesting area of science with loads of exciting implications, the fact is that, like, it's appeared in this reality where, as a society, we're already stratified into unequal groups who form these implicit hierarchies. And so it can be quite difficult for humans to encounter an idea like genetics and not to interpret it in those sort of culturally familiar terms. Absolutely, absolutely. And like, none of us are exempt from this. I think it uh, like it would be very, very difficult for us to take off those those glasses, that mm. prism, you know, those glasses of culture, of the culture that we know, uh, looking at stuff like this and try to be completely scientifically neutral unless we, we start using, you know, those, those <laughs> that kind of Greek combination of letters and numbers, etc. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So basically, yeah, what I'm saying is there are two versions of genetics out there. One of them is so complex that, like, none of us understand it. The other one <laughs> is basically this, a popular mythology that's super easy to understand because we made it exactly along the lines of, of what we expected it to be. Okay. Right. Yeah, well, and one like, that popular version is the sort of, like, mythology about what the research means, but it doesn't actually accurately represent what's really going on in the science, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, sometimes it can really seem like it is, mm. uh, but it's not. So... Here's a really good example, right? Mm -hmm. um, one huge thing that popular that the popular mythology of genetics tends to do mm -hmm. is to confound genetics and ethnicity, which, I, especially mm. since we're going to be talking about those at-home DNA tests later, that's a really interesting one here. And it's very mm. much worth clarifying before we go any further. Okay. So genetics is not the same thing as, an eth uh, as ethnicity. Mm -hmm. um, ethnicity is a cultural thing. We made it. It's purely, purely a cultural thing. Uh, it wouldn't exist in the world if we didn't talk about it, if we hadn't okay. created the concept as human beings. Mm -hmm. And most of the things that define ethnicity are not dependent on genetics, if you think about it. Like mm -hmm. most of the vast majority of things, um, language or religion or mostly culture, right? None of these things are genetic, mm -hmm. but they are hereditary. 
in mm. their own way. Right? They're passed down pretty reliably from one generation to the next. And, you know, they can almost kind of work a little bit like genes sometimes because they mix with other cultures and other mm. languages and they create new versions and, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I think because those things are in their own way hereditary, mm-hmm. it can be easy for those distinctions to get very, very blurred very quickly. They get there. mixed up with genetics. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's just the way we, it's the things we think of when we think of genetics. We mm. we, we might go there kind of, even just um, subconsciously in our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, but like even the genetic stuff, right, is largely cultural when we think about ethnicity. Okay. So the way we divide ourselves up according to physical appearance, for instance, that's completely cultural. We're the ones who choose which physical features are culturally important, right? Mm. So in a different world, if history had happened differently, we might have chosen completely different typical um, cultural signifiers of physical Mm -hmm. appearance. Like instead of dividing people up uh, by skin color, for instance, we might have divided them up by the size of their hands or (laughs) the pitch of their voice or their propensity to certain genetic diseases. I mean, that would be a very solid one, right? If Mm. we said, oh, everyone who has a a certain genetic um, predisposition to a disease, you're all kind of put in in category A. That would be a lot more coherent, actually, right? Mm. Um, It's completely arbitrary. So the the choices of how to divide up people is arbitrary, like which of these categories, which of these features that people have, like putting all the tall people together or all the short people together or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's basically what we're doing when we divide people up by skin color, for mm-hmm. instance. It doesn't align with any genetic pattern whatsoever. So ideas like race are completely meaningless from a genetic point of view because the typical cultural signifiers of race, like, like skin color or stature or hair type or whatever, mm-hmm. these are fairly trivial um, things genetically like it's a little bit um, as far as I understand it it's about comparable to eye color okay right in terms of like how important it is you know the, these features it's very superficial it's very superficial genetically and if you think about our cultural categories of race for instance it, there's actually huge huge variation in those things mm-hmm. within that category anyway so it doesn't even make that much sense so it's a little bit like saying that everyone in the world with brown eyes is one type of human being mm. you know is like like it's it's absurd because yeah, sure, if we want to, if this is important to us, we could culturally group together everyone with brown eyes, but genetics isn't going to care about that cultural grouping. Mm. The rest of the genetic makeup of that group is going to be so diverse that that grouping has no coherence beyond that one cultural signifier that we I think see. is important. I see. So there's, yeah. there's greater genetic diversity within that random category that we've come up with than between that category yeah. and some other category. So like between the brown eyed people and the blue eyed people, there'll be more similarities than, you know, than, yeah. than there will be between like the people who both have brown eyes. Yeah. And this, this is absolutely true of the typical racial categories that we have today. Mm. It is entirely likely that you or me share more genetically in common with someone who is, quote unquote, uh, a part of a different racial grouping than us, right. than we do with somebody who lives down the road. Uh, because that's just not, you know, the color, the color of our skin is not an indicator of that by any means. It's just like one tiny, very random thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In the whole genetic code. Um it's like, it's like kind of saying like, oh, you know, we're going to decide that all the houses in the world that are in the color red, that's all one kind of house, for example. It's it's just like extremely yeah. superficial. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Red mansion and a red caravan is just, yeah, they're all red <laughs> houses. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's an important thing to have mentioned because mm-hmm. there's just so much baggage 
uh, mm. here with this. And just to kind of, what's the word to disassociate ourselves, to deconstruct, I suppose, um, our cultural baggage a little bit before entering into this. Yeah, good so, idea. keeping all that in mind, I want mm-hmm. to move on to the Irish DNA Atlas. Have you ever heard of this, the Irish DNA Atlas? No, I actually haven't. Okay, yeah, it made headlines a few years ago when some of the first findings were found, I think, mm-hmm. um, big findings. Mm-hmm. It was about 2017. This is really interesting. It's it's a massive mapping project of genetic patterns in Ireland. Mm-hmm. It's still going. It's headed by the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland and the Genealogical Society of Ireland together. Mm-hmm. And when I say that it's a mapping project, it's literally mapping. It's trying to create correlations of genetic clusters and patterns with an actual map of the island. Okay, interesting. There's all sorts of reasons behind this project. Like, why would you do this? So one of them is genetic diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's quite interesting that there's a few genetic diseases that are particularly prevalent in Ireland. I I don't remember most of them, but cystic fibrosis is one, for example. It's just very overrepresented in Ireland. Apparently, that's not unusual at all for island nations, for even big island nations. It just happens that you just kind of get a circulation, right? The circulation isn't broken and it just kind of gets rooted uh, in in one particular place. So this study by mapping, for instance, those genetic diseases on the island can give us loads of insights into, you know, how is this working? Where is it circulating? How is Mm. it circulating? Who gets it? Who doesn't get it? And hopefully that might help improve diagnosis of those diseases in Ireland in the future. So that's a, that's a really interesting uh, aim of this. That is interesting. And I guess like, n- of course, none of this has been done before, right? And when you're getting down to these like very nuanced patterns, like at a location mm. level, you can do all these comparisons, right? Like you can compare with the rest of Europe and like there's loads of stuff to be learned there that we just don't even know yet. Absolutely. And like you say, yes, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure that nothing even vaguely like this has been done before in Ireland. Mm. This is a massive study. There's hundreds and hundreds of participants. And not only that, but the participants are very, very specific participants, as we'll hear Mm. in a minute. Okay. So another aim, what we're going to be talking about here in this episode, is to analyse genetic patterns in modern Ireland to find out more about the history of the island. So the genetic patterns today can actually tell us loads of interesting stuff like historic um, population size okay. and intercommunity movement and wars and population expansion, all of that kind of interaction. Basically, every time we inter- interacted at a population level, mm-hmm. we leave an imprint on the genetic profile of the island. Okay, so this is something, even more interestingly, that has also been done in Britain. Something very, very similar was done in Britain, I think, at the same time. It started at the same time or a little bit before, which is really handy because obviously there's loads of interesting crossovers and comparisons Mm -hmm. between the two islands of Britain and Ireland genetically. This project has created a literal map of Ireland showing the distribution of what they call different genetic clusters on the island. Genetic clusters. Okay, so genetic clusters. Can you explain a bit more about like how this works? Because, I mean, my impression is that the history of humanity is one of like mass movement and migration and complex migration with people coming, like surging this way, then populations returning and just like extremely complex movements. So like, how can you come up with something that would be considered a typical 
DNA profile, given that history. You're exactly right. I mean, most of our DNA is an incredible smorgasbord of every single interaction that our ancestors made and their ancestors and their ancestors, etc. Yeah. So this, what we're looking for here isn't actually a typical DNA profile, right? Okay. This is based on a very, very, very specific sample range of participants. Mm-hmm. So the participants in the study, I believe they have to be living in a certain area and they have to have all eight great grandparents who were born within 50 kilometers of one another. Okay. Which is hard enough in itself even to find people who fit that because mm. uh, for a lot of people in Ireland, you just would not have the records to know where all of your great grandparents were huh. born. But So that's a very, very specific group of people. But it's also like, it's not a typical group of people, right? This is this is by no means a universal Irish DNA profile. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't think either of us would qualify for that, right? Because our grandparents came, like, I had a grandparent from Roscommon and a grandparent from Kerry and, like, from all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Same here. Yeah, so I had a grandparent from Mayo and a grandparent from Clare. And that would mean that I wouldn't qualify either, right? Um... It would also mean that our DNA profile, yours and mine, Naomi, probably mm-hmm. wouldn't look anything like the kind of profiles that we're looking at in these studies, right? So mm. these, you know, and a lot of, probably the majority of Irish people really who, you know, who've been moving around. That's not the point. The mm-hmm. It's not the point to try and get a kind of, uh, quote unquote, the majority of people in Ireland have this DNA profile. That's not it at all. What they're doing is getting the DNA profile of a very specific kind of participant Mm -hmm. in order to get a very specific snapshot of the concentration of genes that seem to cluster in a very specific area. The people are providing a window into the area. What they're really looking at are these specific areas through people who have lived there in a very consistent manner over several generations, if you get me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's actually not about Ireland as a whole, but like these specific locales, actually. Yes. What, What they have in common... And what they don't have in common, and that can tell us a lot, right, okay. uh, about what went on uh, on the island. So, for instance, if you have two people from the mountains, and then you have two people from the seaside, quite far away, and they joined the study, if all of their great-grandparents reveal connections, genetic mm. connections, then you might be able to infer that populations were moving at some stage between the mountains and the sea, right? Mm. Maybe, you know, there was some kind of um, seasonal movement, right? If they don't, if they have particular kind of differences or if they show kind of singularities, you might infer that, oh, the people in the mountains kept to themselves. Or yeah. you might see that the people who live beside the sea, they have some patterns that extend up the coast. So clearly some people were moving up and down the coast at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. You, you can extrapolate all sorts of things from this. And at the same time, you can extrapolate to a very small degree. For instance, you don't know when these people were moving from the mountains mm-hmm. to the sea exactly what time. For that, you kind of have to use other evidence. Right. So you need to sort of cross-reference this with sort of historical evidence and all kinds of things to, to like draw inferences from it. I guess like what we're doing yeah. is we're, we're, we're constantly creating new genetic clusters, like whenever we interact with each other. Um, and so by analyzing these clusters, this DNA atlas, this can give us like a rough history of human interaction. Like we can trace things. We can trace certain genes which are occurring and like how how common and where they are. 
Yeah, there's a lot more information, by the way, about how the study works online, if you're interested. So you can check out the RCSI or the Genealogical Society of Ireland websites, and they have, um, they not only have uh, info, but I think they have links to other information sources. Mm. I myself, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper, so I waded into all that abstract genetic jargon and uh, honed up a little bit, in particular with a very useful 2017 article in the science journal Nature. The article, if you want to read it yourself, was called The Irish DNA Atlas, Revealing Fine-Scale Population Structure and History Within Ireland. It's open access, so everyone can read it, Mm -hmm. and I will post a link to it up on Patreon as well. So, I want to share some of the stuff from that article with you. I think that was as close to kind of um, a layperson's guide as I was going to find. Okay, I can't wait to hear it. So, first of all, there's, um, there's this question, right, of what geneticists call ancestry. Hmm. Now, this is something that we could easily kind of make the the wrong assumption about, so it's worth clarifying as well. Ancestry, in this genetic context, it means that a lot of people in a given group have a piece of DNA that links them to a common ancestor. Hmm. Let's say there's a town in Spain where a lot of people's great-grandparents share a distinctive gene or set of genes, a a cluster, if you will. Yeah. And then let's say you find out that there's an area in West Cork where people also have this gene. Mm. You can extrapolate that these people in West Cork and those people in that town in Spain share a common ancestor. That's what it means uh, by ancestry. Doesn't mean that everyone in West Cork is Spanish, necessarily. It could mean that everyone in Spain is, is from West Cork. <laughs> you, know, you, can usually, um, you can usually make more um, educated guesses than that, depending on the, on the frequency of this. But that's, that's all this means, right? So there's a common ancestor involved here somewhere. So in the study, we might talk about Irish people with Spanish ancestry. And all that means is the degree of genes that they share with a specific genetic cluster in Spain. So okay. you follow. We're, yeah, we're okay. talking about right. we're talking about a link. It's not necessarily that they're descended from Spain, but they ha- they share a common ancestor somewhere. Yes, exactly. I think this is really important in the context of the United States, actually, and the Americas mm-hmm. in general, where people might talk about ancestry in terms of, you know, I'm Italian-American or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's not that. That's not what this means, I suppose, is the thing to get straight. Okay. I mean... <laughs> I'm glad you're following. I hope you're following at home, listeners, because <laughs> I think halfway through writing the notes in this, I was like, hold on, do I understand anything? I'm not <laughs> sure. I think I'm lost. <laughs> I think I'm wrong. I think I understand it all wrong. But no, no, no. I know. I, I, I think we're on, we're, on, we're on point here for the moment. Okay. okay. So, interestingly, Ireland has this really distinct ancestry profile, which is really different from the typical ancestry profile for this kind of mapping in Britain. And that shows us how the two islands experienced completely different migratory events, actually, over the last few millennia. For instance, the study shows that every identifiable genetic cluster in Ireland, so the ones in, I don't know, the ones in Derry, the ones in Cork, the ones in Galway, the ones in Dublin, the ones in Wicklow, everywhere, every single one of them shares most of its genes, Mm -hmm. by far, with one genetic cluster in northwestern France. This very, very specific gene cluster, it's called FRA1, FRA1, maybe. And that accounts for over 40% of genetic ancestry in every single one of those clusters that was identified in the study. Okay, so there's some sort of link going on there between something, some population in France and the population of Ireland. Does it mean that we are all French? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's very tempting to say so, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I want. I want to simplify to that, but we're not allowed to do that, right? So we're not exactly all French. 
but about 40% of the ancestors of the participants had ancestors from this genetic cluster, which is very predominant in this particular northwest region in France. Mm. It doesn't mean, for instance, to flesh this out a bit, it doesn't mean that a group of people came directly from that place to Ireland. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, evidence of that genetic FRA FRA1 cluster is also found in other Celtic nations. Hmm. So this could have been a question of loads of people coming to Ireland from Wales, for instance. Okay. We really don't know. You actually get it in quite high quantities in, so I said, like Wales. You get it in Western Scotland and you get it in Cornwall. And of course, Northwest France, we're centering here around Brittany, right? Which is also this kind of uh, typically Celtic culture, right? So you have hmm. this incre- intriguing Celtic connection there. And what exactly the movement was, we don't really know. So there's no, uh, as far as I understand, yeah. Okay, that's really interesting because obviously like the sort of, the idea of the history of these Celtic peoples is that they would have come from continental Europe originally and then they would have gone to all of, you know, these different places. Um, So, you know, it could have been a population that like split up in Austria and then the different bits of it moved to these different places it's it's really interesting that it kind of aligns it does map on more or less accurately to places that have maintained a distinct Celtic legacy in the culture sphere right in the sort of ethnicity we were talking about which is hereditary as well but not genetics um, in terms of culture and language and stuff And it kind of, it takes me back a little bit to that episode that we did about the whole contested history of the idea of Celtic peoples and whether, you know, European Celts and Celts in in parts of Britain and Ireland were the same people or not. Yeah, right. I I was thinking about that while I was researching this and wondering what what it all means. I I, I have no idea, honestly, what implications something like the FRA1 gene has on that discussion. The discussion from memory listeners was whether some kind of migration took place from mainland Celtic Europe to mm-hmm. Ireland and Scotland or wherever, uh, or whether the Celtic cultures that were very similar in some ways between the mainland Celts and the island Celts was simply a, a cultural transfer. That's that's the um, that's the discussion. Uh-huh. I don't know if this has any implication on that. It could also be a question of pre-Roman, just a pre-Roman gene, right? Because all of these places, those kind of typically Celtic countries uh, or nations or regions or territories or whatever, uh, one of the reasons why they have maintained those that Celtic culture is quite simply because the Roman Empire didn't make very many inroads there. So mm. it could just be that all of this is a kind of common pre-Roman thing. Um, who it's knows? An, right? It's some sort of older population trait. Or I remember no. there was one other uh, discussion as well when we were talking about the Celts that maybe Ireland was the sort of hub and it was us who were exporting it everywhere else. So I yeah. guess that's an also, also yeah. another possibility. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a possibility culturally. Um, yeah. I don't know genetically if that stands up. I, I presume that if this study has traced the gene FRA1 to France, I presume that that's where it's mostly concentrated. So they're probably mm. working off that, but uh, who knows? I mean, but like in terms of those discussions about migration mm. or cultural transfer that we talked about in our episode on the Celts, this has been upset. In that episode, I mm. said uh, pretty confidently from the research that exists right now that mm. there's no great evidence for any major migration um, mm. to Ireland. And that's one of the reasons people are a bit suspect about that whole um, traditional Celtic migration narrative. But something like that has been disrupted before because of DNA evidence. Mm. So until really recently, I think it was actually, was it this year or last year? I mean, this is Mm. super recent. There was this whole school of historians in the UK 
uh, who studied Anglo-Saxon culture and history. Mm. And they used to claim that, no, no, there was no real Anglo-Saxon migration to England, that a lot of this was just cultural transfer and that it's kind of a myth, right, of all these Anglo-Saxons showing up on, on the shores of England, right? Uh, so just to say, Anglo-Saxons being who exactly? Anglo-Saxons being peoples who come from northern Germany, about Netherlands, Denmark, that kind of region, okay. um, who speak a kind of uh, a set of dialects, one of them being Anglish, right, which is where mm. we get the word English, and okay. one of them being Saxon, which are very still very similar to English. So like Frisian is famously very, very close to English. And Yeah, they have the same word for cheese. Their word for cheese is just cheese. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. So traditionally, people believed that after the fall of the Roman Empire, hordes of those people from Denmark, the Angles and the Saxons, arrived in England in particular, started speaking their language, practicing their culture, and that's where um, when the Angles and the Saxons came together and did their thing, eventually you end up with this Anglo-Saxon period and you get, like, English as a language, etc., huh. right? Okay, uh, okay, okay. So a lot of historians used to say, no, 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 there wasn't hordes of people coming. This, this was a cultural thing. Turns out there was. Genetic oh. <laughs> mapping proved that there was, right? So okay. that traditional idea of hordes of Anglo-Saxons arriving on the shores of England is pretty much completely proved now, right? So the DNA mm. showed, yes, there is huge Anglo-Saxon DNA. There was a huge amount of DNA that came directly in into especially Southeast England, just like huh. the kind of traditional history had it. And that, like, as we can see, that had a major effect on how we understand the history of migration in the ancient world. Um, so these things do happen, and they're happening because of genetic studies like this. So the yeah. Irish DNA Atlas, it does recognize this, this whole Celtic uh, commonality here. I quote, mm. it says... The northwest of France has previously been shown to have genetic links with Celtic populations in Britain and Ireland. Therefore, the large signal we observe within Ireland could reflect Ireland as a quote-unquote sink of Celtic ancestry, considering its isolation compared to other British Celtic groups. Considering the links to northwest France from to other Celtic populations, we do not interpret this as a Norman signal. That is really interesting. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Mm. Uh, just to clarify, they're saying, you know, Normans came later and uh, Normans also came from northwest France, but they're thinking, saying, no, no, this is probably pre-Norman uh, cluster. Right. Hmm. right. It's so interesting to think about Ireland as, like, that does sort of suggest Ireland is this repository of Celticism, like, it, the, the kind of cultural mm. idea that we have. Yeah, there's obviously loads of migration going in all sorts of different directions. So you could have Irish people going to sort of populate Scotland and so on, as we know happened in history. And you could have Ireland acting as a source for this genetic repository. Um, I guess, you know, we'll get more discoveries as the, as the science becomes more advanced. Yeah, this is really exciting. Uh, it's really exciting. And always, of course, with this caveat that, you know, we it can tell us so much, right? And not, and not always everything. Um, mm -hmm. There are some other really clear indication of migration patterns in this study. Uh, mm -hmm. So obviously, like from what we just said, Britain has a really significant genetic ancestry from Germany, especially mm -hmm. in Southeast England. So that's linked to those Anglo-Saxon settlements. While in Ireland, of course, as you would expect, there's hardly any German ancestry at all, right? Because there was little to no um, settlement of Anglo-Saxon migrants uh, during that period. <laughs> On the other hand, though, Ireland has a massive 20%, 20% ancestry from just one country in Scandinavia, and that's Norway. This is Norway. huge Norwegian ancestry, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, just Norway, right? So, you know, Britain has loads from Denmark and <laughs> from other parts of Scandinavia. Ireland is really just very much Norwegian. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I quote again from the article. Uh, it says, quote, The Norwegian individuals that contribute this ancestry to Irish clusters are predominantly from areas in Norway where Norse Viking activity is known to originate from. The effect of the Norse Vikings on the genetic landscape of Ireland seems to be shared across Ireland and not limited to the regions of Norse settlement, for example, Limerick, Waterford, Wexford and Dublin. How interesting. So we have like this big yeah. Viking influence. Um, but what does it tell us about the settlement? Uh, like the, the fact that they're not clustered yeah. in those places? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing that, you know, they're kind of noting down here is this could have been something else because let's say there could have been a huge wave of migration in the in the ancient world that was just never recorded from Norway to Ireland. You know, that could have been a thing, right? Okay. Um, but it's, it's probably not because of what they're saying here. It's coming, these clusters, these genes are coming from areas that were known for Viking activity. So it's very, very likely these are all Vikings, right, that are making this up. <laughs> so firstly, it shows that Viking settlement in Ireland was huge. Like, loads and loads of people were obviously settling down in this country um, mm. and having kids, right? So, I mean, this is the main thing it shows us. They were having families here. Uh, right. And secondly, it shows that uh, Viking ancestry, like you mentioned there, is pretty much equally common everywhere across the island, not just in these Viking cities that we know about. So Dublin famously yeah. was a Viking city, so was Waterford and Limerick. So in one way, that tells us loads. In another way, it kind of creates more mysteries. But <laughs> mm. there's a few possible explanations for why this might be. The study suggests that maybe these Norwegian genes were more widespread because there were fewer quote-unquote genetic barriers for the Vikings. Mm. So what does that mean? It means that, let's say you're a Viking and you settle down in Limerick. Mm -hmm. Unlike a local Gaelic chieftain who is also living in Limerick, Mm. You don't care about who whose clan your wife comes from, okay. right? You're not as picky. <laughs> You're not as picky because everyone's yeah. just a you know a funny Irish person to you, right? <laughs> While in the local communities there would have been all kinds of cultural, political, maybe religious, who knows, kind of barriers, genetic yeah. barriers that stop people from having families with each other, right? There's that. Also, maybe you're looking for some nice, interesting land. Maybe you're looking to explore the place a little bit. So you're just kind of moving around and settling down mm. in random places. Or, I mean, there's another option at that it's the Normans again. Because the mm. Normans were largely descended from Vikings themselves. That's where really? the name comes from. The Normans is the Northmen is, is where the, it comes from. Okay. Um, so the Normans who lived in northern France for centuries originally were Viking settlers a few centuries earlier. Huh. So if they come back and settle Ireland in pretty huge numbers again, they're going to bring those genes, the Norwegian genes, all the way back into Ireland again, hmm. right? Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of crazy with this genealogy yeah. stuff because some of it is so specific and some of it is like pretty much guesswork, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the first thing I wanted to cover. This is the genetic right. ties to Europe, but this isn't even the interesting stuff. I want to get to what okay. the, the study discovered about the distribution of gene clusters on the island itself. Okay, go for it. This actually kind of blew my mind, Naomi, so stay with me here, okay? Mm -hmm. Firstly, the study was able to identify 10 primary gene clusters on the island of Ireland. So by getting all of these people's DNA who had people who lived in the same place for generations and generations, mm -hmm. they were able to narrow things down to, there's about 10 kind of distinctive gene clusters that, are, um, that you can find on the island. Okay. Seven of those gene clusters 
were labeled as quote unquote Gaelic clusters. Okay. And the other three were labeled in the study as Irish and British clusters, right? Hmm. Yeah. So the second one is easy. Let's start with those Irish, British Irish clusters. Um, they're not difficult to figure out. They're labeled N Ireland 1, N Ireland 2, and N Ireland 3. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's because they're mostly found in the north, but they're mostly found in the north. Okay. Right? <laughs> uh, which is not surprising at all, right? Um, these clusters, I'm, I mean, they're almost easy to trace because mm. the gene clusters themselves coincide with names, family names that are English or Scottish. Right. So it's actually like, you know, th- there's no mystery here whatsoever. <laughs> so like the, the vast majority of the genetic legacy within those clusters can be traced to the plantations in the okay. 16th and the 17th centuries. Right. There's also some simple geographic influence about the north, though, of course, this part of the island of Ireland is super, super close to Scotland. So mm. way before the plantations, people were moving back between those two places for centuries. Um, if you think about even the kingdom of Dalriada, right, mm-hmm. that we've talked about before on the pod, that definitely had an influence as well. Right. OK, so that's that. That's the three Irish-British clusters. Pretty much um, not much mystery. Yes. Then we get to the kicker. The seven quote-unquote Gaelic clusters. Okay, yeah, I want to hear more about the Gaelic clusters. Tell me, Tim. So you might think that the study named these clusters Gaelic because they weren't as influenced by the genetic input of colonial settlers, right? You might think that's why they're called Gaelic. I guess, yeah. Well, no, that is not why they're called Gaelic clusters. These Gaelic clusters are called Gaelic clusters because they map almost perfectly onto the administrative boundaries of Gaelic Ireland. <laughs> what? Okay. So tell me more. What are the administrative boundaries of Gaelic Ireland? You're talking about like the limits of power and control of particular clans? Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, basically. So basically each cluster is found almost exclusively within the boundaries of an ancient Irish province or kingdom, which doesn't exist anymore, by the way. Most of these mm-hmm. things don't exist anymore. And when you cross a, a county boundary or whatever, you're suddenly into a new cluster. That's amazing. So you're saying that pe- there's seven different bits of Ireland where people have like genetically distinct clusters. Yeah, um, not only that, those seven bits of Ireland coincide with like county boundaries. <laughs> That's crazy. So, like, the study found this remarkable, this astonishing number of genetic barriers okay. running alongside the political boundaries of Gaelic Ireland. And they, a lot of the political boundaries of Gaelic Ireland are still the county boundaries or the province boundaries today. Mm. So to put this in perspective, this is completely unlike anything that can be found in Britain in the same way. So uh, something similar can be found in the national boundaries on the island of Britain. So you you see a clear genetic barrier between Scotland and England, for instance. Okay. So that clearly, if you lived on the English side of the border, you were likely to stay on the English side of the border and not to move across the border. Right. That was a genetic barrier. Right. So that's that's a thing that can be seen. But down to this specific level, that if you live like in Leitrim, you nary dare, uh, you nary dare put a foot in Ross Common. It's kind, of, <laughs> it's kind of what's going on here. Like, this is completely remarkable. So it's like the deep hatred of the All Ireland final actually goes back like <laughs> millennia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, quite kind of literally. So it shows uh, that people in Ireland didn't like to migrate from their specific political territories if they could help it. 
Like, the political boundaries definitely seem to have been more influential on how people moved than the geographic boundaries. So it's not a question of there's a high mountain over there, I won't go. It's a question of that place is right beside me, but I won't go because it belongs to a different political um, uh, administration. Wow. So this has left a legacy to this very day. When you look at the genetic map of Ireland, you can literally see the long vanished borders of ancient Gaelic kingdoms because the gene clusters are still so perfectly distinct on each side of those borders today. Isn't that wild? That is completely wild. And I I want to know (laughs) about these seven Gaelic kingdoms as well. Like, I want to know more about their history and why people weren't mixing like that. I guess it's like the, the old clan system. Um, where you had these like clans and like very extended families and like loyalty groups and of course there was all this rivalry and warfare that was going on and and maybe that's the context to why people were really keeping to their own who knows even if we do let's say if we try and map this onto the clan system like you say Mm -hmm. you can never really be sure that you're getting the right you know, the right historical system with the right genetic um, distribution, right? It's very hard to kind of pin these things down, especially because the histories that we have of things about this, a lot of that is also guesswork. Um, You know, a lot of that is based on, you know, tellings or, um, you know, old history books that were written kind of half made up and half or half forgotten or half political propaganda. You know, a lot of that kind of history is we are already taking with a with a pinch of salt. So it can this this whole thing is mired in uh, in mystery, but it's also Mm. kind of a stepping stone to figure out what what really was going on. So, Mm. right. We get to know more. It gets even better. These gene clusters are so aligned with administrative boundaries that they can Mm. be predictable. You can actually predict what they're going to do. So the study was, from these gene clusters, able to trace historical annexations between one geopolitical territory and another because they knew how these people were interacting with each other, right? So they can kind of tell what what they're doing here. So for instance, there used to be two ancient kingdoms within the province of Mulster. A okay. kingdom called uh, Dolkosh and a kingdom called Onacht. And each mm-hmm. of those kingdoms... Is that just like Owen's kingdom? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know uh, what the history of those are, really. Uh, but yeah. each of them had their own distinctive gene cluster, right? <laughs> because people who lived there were not moving out of those places. Um, and they were intermarrying within those places. They were intermarrying within those places, I suppose, to a high extent. It doesn't mean that they weren't moving mm. out at all, but enough movement was, there was enough taboo on movement that you get a distinctive gene cluster. Um, right. But later on, the kingdoms of Dolkosh and Oonacht both got absorbed into the greater kingdom of Munster, right? So the kingdom of Munster becomes a thing. And once they're allowed, mm-hmm. they start mov- people start moving. So you can see the gene okay. clusters combining and mixing with one another, right? But they don't move outside Munster. It's like, this is the new political territory now. So now those two gene clusters are all mixed in together, but they're completely hemmed in through the new border of Munster. Uh, between okay. Them. It's amazing. So Munster is this like firmly Dolkosh and Owenacht mix. <laughs> right, yeah. Or th- those two clusters knew their place and stayed where they were. So there's another example right. of that. County Clare was originally part of the kingdom of Connacht, and then it got annexed by Munster, something which us in, in Connacht still rue, rue the thought of today, <laughs> Naomi. That is a great, a great loss to our to our heritage, but Claire, which clearly belongs to to Connacht. That's really weird. I swear, I thought that I, I swear that I thought that Claire was in Connacht. Why is that? 
Yeah, because it's it's on the right side of the Shannon. It's it's on the Connacht yeah, side of the Shannon. That's, that's why. why it's like yeah. <laughs> geopolitically, it should be in Connacht anyway. Yeah, you just go down from Galway, and there you are. You're in there. You're, like it should still be Connacht yeah, anyway. It's yeah. Mad. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> monster. Don't you have enough? Aren't you big enough, monster? <laughs> I'm going to get a lot of angry, angry letters from proud monster Claire people now. I'm half Claire, by the way, so I, I yeah, I can, I can claim this. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, maybe this is um, showing you actually where these sentiments are coming mm. from because people with ancestry from County Clare usually had an equal mix of genes from Connacht and Munster. So like once mm. they, when they were in Munster, they were moving all around Munster. But then once they mm. go into Connacht, they say, okay, now I can move all around in Connacht, right? So once it was a politically accepted part of your territory, people do seem to have been like, all right, now I can go and like meet a nice girl up the road, right? They're <laughs> suddenly happy to, you know, just move a, a few. We're just to put this in perspective, I suppose, for listeners, mm. these are small territories. <laughs> like these are very relatively small territories that we're talking about, kind of not straying for them scenes fascinating yeah like how can we even compare this like if someone's listening in the united states the sort of areas we're talking about are so tiny <laughs> compared to like the mass you know of the u.s like we're really speaking about like what might be i don't know one metropolitan area or something like that like it's really small yeah. um yeah like one part of brooklyn to another yeah it's a little bit frustrating, though, because like to me, it's sort of telling me that there's just so much we don't know about our own history, because clearly there must have been structural reasons for this or like very, very, very strong cultural reasons. And they're sort of like almost within reach. You know, they're like suggested here by the DNA, but we don't really know why. Yeah, exactly. And what kind of people were these? We don't even know that maybe this was a kind of common people thing, or maybe this was a certain kind of, um, I don't know, a certain kind of section of society. Who knows? And also remember, this is just a snapshot. And this is kind of at a population level that we're looking at. There mm-hmm. were definitely loads of people who were not staying where they lived. There were definitely loads of people mm-hmm. who were traveling all over the place. But this is just something that stands out that we're seeing here. Okay, like statistically, people were tending to yeah. stay within their whatever. Maybe that's a kind of a surf exactly. thing. Like people were working the land and they weren't allowed to move or something. And maybe it was a really negative thing. God, who, knew, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, it, this is pre-feudal, right? So the Gaelic mm-hmm. society wasn't feudal. So, um, you know, even that we can't even like, yeah, anyway. Right. Okay. One of the most interesting little insights that we get is in Ulster. So for mm-hmm. whatever reason, one of the Gaelic gene clusters in the north part of the island, which this co- mm-hmm. study calls the Ulster cluster, the Ulster cluster, mm-hmm. if anyone's... Kind of <laughs> catchy. Anyone, I don't know if anyone in Fermanagh wants to open a, a nightclub... <laughs> might be Uh, uh, yeah maybe i should copyright the ulster cluster actually anyway (laughs) (laughs) so this particular cluster the ulster cluster shows the greatest genetic distance from genetic clusters in britain so this is Hmm. the most quote-unquote distinctly irish cluster in a geographical sense if you understand what i mean right Mm. it bears the least in common with uh, any genetic uh, cluster in britain so it stands out Like, this one is easy to see. And it really stands out against the other main clusters in Northern Ireland, right? Which are mostly, within the um, political territory of Northern Ireland, most of the clusters are the three Irish-British clusters, which, of course, makes sense, right? And what you can see from this genetic study, first of all, is a pretty distinct geographical dividing line within Northern Ireland between the West and the South, uh, which mostly shows this Ulster cluster, and the east and the north, 
which mostly shows Irish-British clusters. Uh, so to be clear for listeners, that pretty much replicates the rough geography of ethno-political divide in Northern Ireland. Yeah, that's like a post-election results map, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Northern East are more unionist and the West and the South are more, more nationalist, which makes complete sense. I mean, historically, yeah. when we look at everything historically, even just the simple fact that the West and the South are closer to the border, right? Like it makes complete yeah. sense. But what's interesting about the genes following those political and cultural uh, patterns is that what we're seeing here on the DNA atlas is the genetic legacy of centuries of people from each of those communities not marrying each other. Mm, This distinctly Gaelic Ulster cluster has remained predominant in these territorial sections of Northern Ireland through people who lived there, literally not intermarrying with people who live right beside them and having done this since the plantations pretty consistently. Mm. So, you know, that's what's interesting. Like, that's kind of the interesting mm-hmm. part of this. It's not surprising at all to see that divide. What's surprising is to see it... In, sorry, the divide culturally is not surprising at all. Uh, that yeah. it's had that effect on the way we have interacted um, it really tells us a lot, right, about what... Yeah. Interaction has been over hundreds of years um, in those specific areas that are still like that today. Like, it's amazing yeah. to have this biological imprint of political and religious divides visible as geographical yeah. divisions on this genetic map. It's, it's kind of insane, but also makes sense. And it's kind of depressing as well. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, listen, I've, uh, who are we to make moral judgments on our DNA? But it, like, it, gives us, <laughs> it just gives us a very clear view of the past when we know so mm. much about that particular particular history and that particular region, I suppose it gives you a window into what was life like in 1712, what was life like in 1690, what was life like in 1820, mm-hmm. pretty much like it is now, it turns yeah. out, right? People were still yeah. not interacting in ways that we might have expected them to, you know, um, mm-hmm. more or less over time. Now, anyway, fascinating. So that's that's what I gleaned for you, talking about this for a long time. <laughs> that <remember>. is the <laughs> overview. That's the overview of the overall yes. Irish uh, genetic, genetic clusters and so on. We are interrupting this broadcast to bring you our first ever Patreon shout out. This one goes out to Dr. Peter Meidlinger, and it came into us from his colleague, Dr. Jennifer Joslin. Jennifer says, a shout out to Dr. Peter Meidlinger, who has been an absolute joy to teach with as we've explored Ireland and the US in our first year classes at Drury University in the States. Slauncha. A big huge hello to Peter, Jennifer, and everyone at Drury, from Naomi and myself as well. It sounds like you're all having a great and very educational time. And now we can share with each other our own specific results that we got from this DNA test. Okay, so who's going to go first? Oh, 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 you, Naomi, you go first. <laughs> I'm nervous. Ooh, okay, 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 great. I'm, I'm, why am I nervous? I'm kind of nervous too. Oh okay, God. so what I did, uh, yeah, so you get this test. Uh, you had to scrape, I think, the inside of your cheek, and then you put the swab into a um, plastic bag type thing and posted it off, and then we got these results. Now, before I got my results... I wanted to write down what I expected them to be so that I remembered it. And then I would like then come and see what I actually got. So basically what I expected, Tim, was I actually expected that I would have only something like 50% Irish because my mom's grandparents came from somewhere else, right? They moved to Ireland from in the 1950s and they were both Londoners Mm. and they have like a mixed Mm. background, 
so I was kind of expecting, yeah, okay, so one half of my family is is just like Irish and Irish going all the way back. And then the other half is like people from a whole variety of different places. So I really thought that I would be half, roughly 50% Irish. Tim, mm. my result was like 90% Irish, okay? <laughs> so I just turned out to be overwhelmingly Irish, more Irish than I thought, okay? So... Oh um this is explainable in two ways. So first of all, now we always get 50% of our genes from our parents, right? It's always 50% oh. from each parent. But the amount, the share that you get from their parents, from your grandparents, that's like a roll of the dice. You don't know if you're going to get like 20% from grandmother and like 70% of the granddad or like what mix it's going to be. So you can end up yeah. getting like a concentration. It doesn't divide like mathematically each each generation. So you can get like a, a heap more of one side of the family and not the other or whatever. That's one explanation. Second explanation is my my grandmother, even though she did come from London and she moved to Ireland in the 1950s, her own ancestry was um, quite a lot in Scotland, right? Her, okay. her mother was actually born in a Scottish workhouse and she remembers like her, apparently the grandmother spoke Gaelic, right? So they're probably... Uh there's probably a link there. Like there's probably, they're probably genetically yeah. similar since it's Gaelic speaking on that side of the family too. And there's also a family story mm. about how one of them came out of Northern Ireland anyway. So like, I, like this is like very big family history, but it sort of makes sense that possibly I was getting some Irish stuff on both sides, even though it came via mm. London, if you know what I mean. Okay, so then yeah. the next group that I had was unsurprisingly from our overview of general Irish DNA was Viking stuff, right? Like I had a fair whack of the old ah. Scandinavian DNA. That's where you get your lovely blonde locks. I suppose <laughs> uh, that and uh, yeah, bottle of bleach, Tim. But um, <laughs> I, I also had a little bit of Baltics and Eastern Europeans, just a bit, um, which makes okay. perfect sense because mm -hmm. my granddad's people, I actually thought I would have more of that. Um, my granddad's people who came via London originally way back when uh, the surname it actually comes from Silesia which is a place which you know we don't really refer to anymore but it was like in the Austro-Hungarian Empire it's mostly in Poland huh. um, but yeah there so it kind of makes sense that I would have some of that but then Tim there was <gasps> one surprise oh. one rogue oh. element in the mix <laughs> are you ready I can't wait, I can't and wait. this was drum roll drum roll drum roll I'm a tiny bit Nigerian. Nigerian? How much percent Nigerian are you? Okay, so it's small enough that it could just be noise. So it could be random. It's small enough that it might uh -huh, just be, right. like, not real. But it could be. It's possible. And I find it yeah. really, really interesting to think about. It's like, I don't know, some 1% or 2% or something like that. Super interesting oh, to think wow. about. Like, that DNA, like I was saying, it gets handed down in a random way from grandparents so it's really mm. hard to tell like what generation it could be from but being so mm. small like it, I, I kind of calculated back and you could think about having an ancestor maybe in the 19th century um who was from wow from west africa or something and that's just really fascinating to think of like it's kind of tempting to think oh because i've got that like link with people who came out of london london's obviously a big metropolitan city would be very diverse there'd be tons of nigerian people there maybe it makes sense there but equally, you know, 
could be from Ireland too, because you had people like Rachel Baptist, who was a famous singer. Her roots were in Africa, but she was Irish. Yeah. She lived in Dublin and she like performed internationally, performing Irish music and other stuff. And that was between like 1750 and 1773. So there were people, you know, there were there were kind of mixing. So it's totally possible. I don't know if it's a random noise, because uh, you do get this like sort of random results sometimes that aren't necessarily mm. concrete. Um, but yeah, really interesting to think about. That is so interesting. And yes, there were. I actually have some figures on the tip of my tongue because I've just uh-huh. um, I've just been writing on this not that long ago. And now I mean, this is from memory. But um, I believe uh-huh. that in the 18th century, the black population in Ireland was estimated to be about 2000 people, which there it's actually it's, it's, it's kind of a, a guesstimate. And if that guesstimate is true, that would have been a very significant population for the time for mm. Western Europe. Like that would not have been small at all. Um, so yeah, it's entirely plausible, entirely plausible that there's some connection there. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That's fascinating. <laughs> okay. So what about you, Tim? Okay. Well, I have some news that you're going to absolutely love, first of all. Okay. What? Um, <laughs> I am less Irish than you are. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, but not by very much. Uh, 89.7% I am Irish. Okay, that's pretty high. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so just like a 0.3% or something. Okay, so then I have have three more ancestries that came up. Two of them are pretty negligible, and then one of them is pretty uh, significant, uh, coming in at 5%. (laughs) Which one? Perché ovviamente Naomi sono italiano. You're ta- what? You have Italian ancestry. <laughs> sono italiano. Oh my god, I believe it. I like I'm completely convinced. Like you you I, yeah. I'm sold. <laughs> Stop. Um sorry, just to put this in perspective, uh listeners, you might know that Naomi used to live in Italy a few years ago and I had like very little interest in Italy. Um uh, I was living <laughs> in France and sometimes I came to visit Naomi and then a few years ago, it was like some kind of weird switch turned in me and I said I suddenly must learn Italian and I've been spending the last few years learning Italian and every 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 now and again I go to Italy to practice my Italian with no link to the country whatsoever and now it turns out the mothership was calling me home Naomi. (laughs) (laughs) That's gas but like five percent is significant like that definitely suggests that there's a real link there and I'm I'm so tempted to get into this whole idea about because you're from Galway and stuff you know there's this whole like Spanish mm. Galway mm. idea and you have that lovely curly dark hair and stuff and <laughs> I don't know yeah you know what we might go into it a little bit further in our after show debrief how about that okay nice sounds good okay all right uh, the two others are it's two point something and two point something it's eastern Europe quote unquote okay you and me both babe <laughs> and the Baltics oh also okay so we both we both have that interesting yeah, yeah that's an interesting one isn't it yeah yeah, so there you go. I want to know more okay. about this uh, this Italian connection. Um, but yeah, you know, before <laughs> we finish off this episode, I, I did actually want to go through um, like a series of health warnings about these at-home yes. DNA tests. Uh, because just like you went through all this sort of like just warning people that there's a load of spurious crap about um, the whole idea, like popular idea of DNA and stuff. Um, also, the, like there's a lot of health warnings to be attached to these DNA tests. 
Um, so we were offered these DNA tests as a kind of promotion and I kind of got really excited and rushed into it and was like excited about the idea of the episode. And then very soon, um, I got really paranoid about whether it was actually a good idea for us to take them. And I kind of, you know, I I did a bit of research into it and I want to talk through all of those concerns as well for anyone who's thinking about doing it, because although it's so fascinating and kind of fun to find out these things, there's also a you know, there's a lot of privacy concerns and it also brings up interesting issues about like ethics and stuff. Um, Mm. So um, obviously, as we said, DNA genetics is such a fascinating and important um, area of science that's evolving so rapidly that, you know, has the potential to revolutionize all kinds of areas. But when it comes to the home DNA tests, we're talking about various different companies and how rigorous their results are. It really depends on you know, what their baseline references. So Tim, just as you were talking about in that study, how they were taking people with like, who had eight great grandparents in a particular area, that's a similar way to how the DNA home testing kits um, build their baseline survey. So they're comparing you against a reference group that they've decided is their baseline for whatever that is. Mm. And If we're just talking about eight great-grandparents from a particular area, that's actually a really, really, really modern baseline. Um, And it's, you know, depending on how large their data set is, it may be very, very bad quality results. Like, we don't know if they're reliable. Um, There's been massive population shifts over the centuries. Like, humans are extremely mobile. So it could be that all of those people just arrived in, like, the 19th century from somewhere else, but now they're being deemed as, like, the core indigenous population of this place, you know? So that reference point, um, you know, is, like, it's there's a lot of risk that the re- that the results are are totally thrown off by like bad reference points um mm. so that's one aspect of it the next concern is unpleasant surprises so doing a dna test for some people it has actually discovered a lot more than they were prepared to discover so for example there are people who discovered that someone wasn't really the son of the dad and stuff like that, or, you know, they're not really their parents or you have secret siblings or, you know, these kind of things like real sort of skeletons can come out of the family closet. People can turn out not to be who they thought they were and it can throw people into crisis. So it's kind of, you know, it's worth mentioning that like it might not happen to to you, but like it's sort of, you wouldn't want someone to be ambushed with that kind of information, you know? And it's, you know, it's not the other people's consent. So like a lot of people who might get involved and give their consent to getting their DNA mapped, right? Secondhand. Right. That's it. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's another aspect that I'll get back to. But Tim, another thing is that like a lot of the tests nowadays are offering like medical advice based on your DNA profile. Um, the, yeah. So this is an emerging area and this probably will be useful once enough research has been done. But right now what's happening is a lot of companies are just trying to cash in on the excitement about DNA. And like I say, their advice is only as good as the research that's behind it. Um, you know, they could say, you know, oh, you're in a particular population that needs like extra vitamin D or something like that. Maybe it's true. Maybe they're taking that from a study of like 17 people that, you know, hasn't been replicated or something. We don't necessarily know very much now about what the presence of certain DNA features actually really means for people. Um, So, yeah, one of these things is that like DNA features can get activated or not depending on our circumstances. Um, So like depending on the conditions that people grow up in. 
Um, so you can have a lot of like potential within your DNA that's only realized depending on the conditions. So for example, you can have the DNA potential to become tall, but it's only going to come out if you get loads of calcium when you're a kid and you have like a lawn to run an, around on or something like that, you know, they, for mm. example. Mm. Um, and then there's the prospect of finding something that's scary, like, you know, risk of a se severe disease or something. Now, this could be very good to know. Maybe many of us would want to know it, but it's another thing that can be really challenging for people if they don't expect it. And we also don't really know how people react to information and whether they react in a kind of positive way or a way that's beneficial. So for example, if you learn that people with your DNA tend to die of heart disease, if you're told that, for example, some people could become fatalistic and think of it as mm. preordained and take no action to take care of themselves. But like, as I've mentioned, DNA needs certain conditions to become manifest. Like, yes, you might die of heart disease if you take particular actions and not others. You know what I mean? Mm, or alternatively, yeah. on the other side of things, they might find out that they're not particularly at risk of cancer or something like that. And then they might decide mm. that it's just fine to smoke and, you know, not quit cigarettes or something like that. Um, so, you know, none of this is a reason to sort of withhold information from people. But I do think it's worth thinking about when we, you know, particularly if this kind of information is still very uncertain because the science is still developing. And it's a science that's so complex, as we've seen. I mean, so what I kept running into um, when I was doing the research for this episode, which I'm sure I'm, I've been guilty of probably countless times in this episode, uh, where geneticists saying, uh, saying again and again, everything you think you know about genes isn't true. Basically, everything okay. you think you understand about genetics, including that stuff we did in high school, remember the blue eye, brown eye, dominant recessive yeah. gene stuff? That's not yeah. as simple as that at all. <laughs> Turns out it's not. Okay. <laughs> um, like that's, you know, geneticists everywhere were saying, no, 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 that's not actually how it works. And like, you're not understanding, or, you know, just don't, don't even try to understand this because it's just, you know, that much more complex than unless you're really going to study wow. it, you know, like you're probably going to make a mistake. And they said that same thing about the genes. So like things like if you have huge genetic predisposition to a certain genetic disease does not mean you're going to get it or even pass it along mm. necessarily depending on a mm -hmm. b c d e f g h you know the entire alphabet right. of um of context of what's going on in people's bodies um right. so yeah so not only is it not well understood the people who understand it um have to be very very well versed in it to even you know get through it right so so things yeah. like these G dna tests in the grander scheme of things this couldn't be more superficial really the kind of stuff they're using here mm. I, I have to say though like the biggest sort of my biggest proviso my biggest concern about the whole thing and my hang up about it is the privacy issue um so mm. you know your dna code is extremely sensitive information it's a unique identifying code about you that you cannot change and a lot of companies are interested in this code for reasons that are not about your benefit, <laughs> but they're about yeah, their benefit. Right. Uh, like to, mm. just for an example. Okay. So a DNA company could, for example, build a database of people who were interested in finding out their ancestries or approximations of their ancestries. And they could decide to sell access to this DNA database to a health insurance company. And that health insurance company could then decide to deny you coverage um, and deny you health insurance because your DNA gets flagged as maybe having a risk for some expensive disease. Or mm. maybe this doesn't happen now, but it happens one generation later and it's your child who's denied because you gave a your DNA to a company 30 years earlier and they can see that, you know, this kid inherited certain genes or, you know, that's your mum. 
Um, now, of course, companies have privacy policies. We're not supposed to share data that's linked to identities, technically. And they have, you know, all, the, all these policies and that we're supposed to read and agree to and stuff. But, you know, in the real world, this stuff get rules like this get bent all the time. You have to trust like every single person in that chain to act to, like to act well. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Like, do we own? Do we trust the next owners of the company or the people that you know? Maybe the company goes bust and some other people end up buying its assets, including its intellectual property assets, which happen to be this big DNA database. And you know, they can change the law, or the government can change the law, and things can change. So anyway. The other thing is that the data is only secure, as secure as their information security system. Um, this is, of course, extremely valuable data to be hacked. Uh, so, you know, they could be the best intentioned company in the world, but, you know, a hacker could get into the system and steal it and sell it. And then you're not in control anymore of like what rules are being followed there. And we could get even more and more dystopian and we could imagine an authoritarian state, which, you know, maybe could comes to be in the future. If they had a map of the DNA of the population, essentially that would be the end to any privacy because we leave our DNA everywhere, you know, from our hair and our skin and stuff. And remember that it's like, they don't need the DNA of everybody. They just need the DNA of one relative of everybody, right? Because it's not just you that you make the decision for when you when you give your DNA. It's your children, it's your siblings, it's your parents, it's your cousins, because you're sharing part of the genetic code and information about who they're related to. And, you know, they, they never consented to this. Um, so the bottom line is that companies interested in doing this may just be building a database of this very, very valuable data motivated by their own interests and not necessarily the interests of you, the consumer. Um, there was actually a really interesting case in the United States, Tim. I don't know if you saw this. Basically, police police used um, one of these um, online DNA ancestry tracking websites to actually find a serial killer. Wow. So they found wow. a guy. Yeah, huh. they, police in the US used DNA to catch a guy who was known as the Golden State Killer. Uh, so the, the Golden State, State Killer, I think, is still alive. Uh, a serial killer who killed 13 people and raped like 51 people. Um, and so Jesus. they had this guy's DNA um, in a rape kit. And it wasn't the police themselves, but someone who was like tangentially involved, like a kind of freelance researcher or something like that, who was involved with the investigation. And they, on their own bat, uploaded this DNA signature to MyHeritage, which is a famous tracking uh, thing. Um, mm -hmm. Now, this was against the rules of MyHeritage, but, you know, the researcher went, to, went, went and did it. And through this, they found a female cousin of the guy, huh. um, so they could identify the cousin. And they went and interviewed the person and said, you know, we're looking for a guy of yay height with blue eyes or whatever. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's Dan or whatever. So they actually found yeah. the guy. He was a, a former police officer called Joseph James D'Angelo. And he was caught and he was jailed and he was convicted through that DNA um, database. Now, some victims and families of, of people, you know, who who were killed and stuff, they were happy about the use of the DNA in this way because it was effective. But other mm. people were against it because they were like, you know, this was very reckless. The rules were bent here. This could have spoiled the chances of a successful conviction because, you know, the rules weren't followed. And it's a real ethical dilemma because obviously the outcome was good, but the way of getting there is actually quite concerning um, because you don't actually want people to be able to track what you're up to through an online database or 
via mm. like your cousin's decision to track their ancestry or whatever you know what i mean <laughs> if right. you're not a serial yeah. killer anyway um so yeah the whole thing is fascinating but yet that is the world we're living in wow and yeah and just just begun right like like the science of genetics itself this kind yeah. of at-home dna um world the brave new world of that is is in in its infancy yeah um, so yeah there's a lot of directions that that could go uh so well wow to, the, you, you've really uh You've ever put a downer on on the on our new Nigerian and Italian heritage, Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> Was it worth it? Was it worth it for us to find that out? Uh, who knows? We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, <laughs> Listen, okay, so we are going to continue talking about this for a little while on our Half Pint uh, After Show debrief, which you can find, as always, over on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash The Irish Passport. And if you want to become a subscriber, don't forget that we have a whole host of new and exciting features over there to give you loads of benefits for helping to support the podcast and to keep it running. Thanks so much. Slán for now. Slán, everyone. <laughs>